Financial crime is everywhere. In action movies, history books, and yes, in our day-to-day -day lives, in companies small and large. Two of Seedkim's portfolio companies, Salve and Resistant AI, are addressing financial crime head-on. Today, we'll hear how their respective founders, Tavi Tamkivi and Martin Rayhawk, think about this issue. You're listening to the Seedcamp Podcast. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast episode, we're going to be uncovering the world of financial crime. Super exciting subject, probably not in a way that you expect. Um, but if you've watched any of these TV shows that, you know, have all this stuff going on in the background about sending money to this place or money laundering or transfer to some account in some shady place, that is what financial crime is. And to talk about that, we have two startups, both seed camp founders, tackling the space. Uh, Martin from Resistant AI and Tavi from South. Welcome, guys. Hello. Happy to be here. Hello. So we're going to get into your individual backgrounds uh, before we talk about each one of your companies. Uh, maybe we start off with you, Tavi. Tell us a little bit more. I know that you have quite the illustrious history uh, before starting South. So maybe tell us a little bit more about your time um, before then and then, uh, and then how you, you came around to starting South. Yes, happy to do that. Uh, I'm, um, I think, pretty classical math uh, nerd. Like I, I spent tens and tens of years studying uh, probability theory and some other mathematics and um, neural networks and data science was my favorite already back in early 2000s. Um, but uh, during my university studies, uh, some people asked me to join uh, Skype, uh, which was um, like a revolutionizing the world of communications. Um, and I was helping uh, Skype uh, fraud team, anti-fraud team to beat uh, financial crime over there. So like uh, chargebacks, uh, like reducing um, uh, like account takeovers, detecting uh, spam and scam and all these bad things. And I was using like tons or like billions of rows of data um, that I processed um, to beat uh, that type of the crime. And then I joined another like Estonian-based um, originated uh, uh, global revolutionary company called TransferWise. And over there, I was uh, building up AML and then compliance departments and products, uh, like including verification and uh, and the customer onboarding, KYC procedures and stuff like that. And over there, I learned a lot about the conflict between like regulatory expectations, uh, criminals uh, interest, and also the company's true customers uh, pain in this, that process. And when I left TransferWise, I, I realized that there are like th thousands and thousands of companies banks and fintechs and other companies in the world were struggling with the same challenges. They're not able to keep their customers happy while serving regulatory needs, while still trying to protect them, themselves and the industry against the financial crime. And it was so exciting that they founded my own company, Salve. And now we have been building that for two years with my team. And it seems that the market is enormous in front of us. So that's my brief story about how, how I got here. Well, that's... I mean, that's only half the story, Tavi, and, and we will get into the other half about Salve in a second. Um, but before then, maybe a little bit about you, Martin, as well, and then a little bit of how you came about to making, uh, you know, Resistant. So actually, it's amazing how close my story is to Tavi's, except different companies. So again, PhD in AI, engineering studies in France before that. And during my PhD, we basically switched at one point into network security. 
Before that, we were doing humanitarian logistics for disaster relief operations. And at some point, the customer asked, like, can you start doing something completely different? And we didn't know why. We didn't know the first thing about network security, but we said yes, because that's how we are. And uh, basically, it started a store that, take us, that took us to the first startup. So we bought what we built from the university, started a company called Cognitive Security, raised VC funding from Credo Ventures, which was the first like actual VC fund in Czech Republic. That was back in 2011. And when we were raising the A round in 2013, Cisco, who was our OEM partner, came forward and bought us as a company. So this is how I got hired by Cisco. I would have never been able to fill in the form that you need to do to join the company other way. So we joined a big company and then we spent six years as a part of Cisco, essentially building the core AI solution for the global network security. And when we were leaving, we were processing data from about 25 million workstations globally. So protecting 25 million employees of the biggest corporations. And that was the point when we realized that you need different kind of team to take it from 25 million to 250 million than the one from zero to 25. And we saw an immense opportunity in the security of the AI itself because we felt that the AI we were building was getting circumvented and that smart attackers were figuring out ways around it. And that basically was the last nudge to get us out of the corporation back into the startup. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a good transition to maybe uh, laying the map of financial crime. And maybe you guys can both help me and help the listener understand that. Because, Tavi, to some extent, I know that you're helping organizations talk to each other and understand the flows of capital. But Martin, you're working with systems developers within those organizations in, in, in catching some of those things in a way that is smart. And, but the world of financial crime, like if you think about it as a, as a, as a, uh, a workflow or as a value chain, maybe you guys can help me sort of unpack that for the audience. It's like, where are the points that financial crime generally happens. If you were to have a pie chart with a distribution of like, you know, percentage of each one of the types of financial crime, where, do, where does it happen? Like where does the most types, of, where does it, you know, what are the bits of it and where does it happen? What would be the bits of the pie, pie chart that you would fill in? Mm-hmm. Maybe I could start and then Martin can, can help to amend and improve it. Uh, um, like in my head, uh, there are like um, two large parts in that, that question. Like one is that the uh, like financial world is, is used to, to commit the crime itself, like to, to steal money from someone. Let's say that um, you have made some good investments uh, and you have earned some good capital, which is sitting on your bank account or somewhere, somewhere in, in, in shares. And then some criminals are super smart and they're figuring out how to get you to transfer this money to their bank account. Or if you have a good unlimited credit card, uh, uh, platinum card or gold card, like how how um, to get your card number over the internet and how to start making purchases uh, online and resell these uh, goods that they're purchasing. So that's like one pretty obvious part. Like I think uh, most of the e-commerce merchants and non-e-commerce merchants even have faced this kind of challenges where, where where the financial world is being used to steal money from someone, either from themselves or from their customers. But uh, And that's pretty obvious and visible. But the second part, which is again much more massive and uh, and more hidden, 
is actually where the financial world is being used to deliver the goods or to deliver the value which has been stolen from someone else like that's like called money laundering so like if someone is selling drugs on the street they're earning a lot of cash and they need to put this cash somewhere into like luxury apartments in new york or london then what are the steps that they they need to make in order to deliver this cash into digital assets and into some like other formats of the assets and then how to process this money and that's um we can talk about human trading and, and other types of the crime, which is generating the criminal proceeds, but how, how this financial system is actually being used to transfer and clean up the system, this kind of financial assets. That's even bigger problem, at least how I see it, than the original classical fraud. But these are only the two massive areas that, that I can see around me. So Martin, maybe you have some, some yeah. additional experiences to share. So I agree with Tavi, and I would even put it in more general ways that today, basically all professional crime is financial crime of some kind. So if you commit fraud or if you commit any crime professionally, if you deal drugs, you need to also commit financial crimes. And it can be seen that there is plenty of expectation and increasing expectation on the part of the public and regulators the banks and other institutions stop this crime and stop the laundering, even if the state is unable to stop the original crime. And that's a big problem, but we also see, and we see this as a primary way, uh, on a primary level, that people attack financial system itself and they cause huge damage on the financial system. And this is obvious and well-known on the payment systems where a big percentage of the cost of credit card payments is actually covering crime and losses associated to the fraud. We also see that uh, inside internal controls and loan origination, there is plenty of misstatements or outright fraud, basically where people misstate their financial history means or their identity. And we see plenty of opportunities how people misuse automated processes or even human processes in existing financial institutions to cause damage. And all of this constitutes financial crime. And every single dollar stolen this way is basically a dollar someone needs to pay, which means more fees, more friction, and basically makes financial system inefficient. Yeah, that's a good way of breaking it out. Sorry, you were going to say something, Tavi? Yeah, like it's just uh, really like uh, what Martin pointed out in the beginning um, for the listeners. If you think about crime, like all the crime that you can imagine, then there are maybe very few areas which don't generate any financial value. Maybe raping is one of them. But it's like very, very hard to figure out like what are the other things which don't generate any any financial value. And that's also everything that's feeding, feeding the, like our, our markets and, and gives us enough work to do. Yeah, so it is It is very good catch-all. You know, the, with the exception of a few crimes, almost all crimes are financial crimes. And as a consequence of that, um, if it generates some sort of value, how do you pump that value into the financial system without getting uh, intercepted is where, you know, some of your companies are, are working on. But then also there is, there's other types that you touched upon in loosely, Martin, um, which is attacking the financial systems themselves. And whether that is to weaken or to obfuscate the trans transactions that are going through, or whether it's to make it more susceptible to losses so that 
you can basically skirt by. I, I would put that as like a fourth category, but even it, it does sit neatly within uh, basically enabling other people to, to launder money, but it is kind of like its own unique thing. It's like, how do you weaken the system so that other transactions can happen? It's its own type of micro crime, um, which is kind of what, what you're working on, Martin. All right, but yeah. maybe let's now take with that context, um, and I'm just going to enumerate that context that how value is generated, whether it be legal or illegal, um, financial crime to steal money, which is the one that you led with Tavi, you know, the simple way, financial crime to deliver value from others that was stolen or, or done illegally. And then the final one is attacking the financial systems, right? Which is, it doesn't necessarily have a specific end goal, but it could very well be that it's, it's tandem to another end goal, meaning you're attacking the financial system so that you can transit money or so that your transactions are caught. There's two separate crimes, but they one enables the other. That's why I separated them out. Maybe this is a good point to tell a little bit more about what your individual companies do. So maybe, Tavi, would you want to talk about the, the nitty gritty of, of what Salve is trying to do to tackle those four points? Mm-hmm. Yes, like in one hand, that's pretty simple. So like um, banks have lots of data and fintechs have a lot of data. We have all heard about data-driven uh, technologies and they have data about um, our customer, like their customer profiles, names, addresses, date of birth, uh, their like um, transactions, like money in, money out, card payments, uh, um, like uh, interactions with online uh like online banking and so on so a lot of data rows uh and uh, and ultimately what they need to do is just uh, to find out which of these uh, entry points uh, transactions which of these customers might not be legit like uh, which of those entries might uh, might refer to some illegal funds which are being transferred from one bank to another from one fintech to another uh, so it sounds trivial but the problem is that if you have lots of data you are being pressured by the regulators to do something um, which is not verbalized very well what you need to do actually. They say that you need to gather your customer's address uh, proof, which can be your cash bill. Uh, and you're thinking how the heck this cash bill should help me to find out the real crime which is happening on my system. So there's huge conflict between this data and crime which is happening potentially versus what I'm being requested to do. And thirdly, like what my customers are expecting me to do. If they, if I'm asking my customers to wait for three days until I'm checking their documents, then they go to another fintech and they, they open an account. So ultimately, what we're doing is that that we're helping to find the synergies or find the balance between the regulatory interest, internal uh, like data points which are used to define crime, and thirdly the customer interest. And and it comes down to like uh, running um, SQL queries in your database, building a nice. Uh, user interface around that so that people who are not SQL gurus can run these queries, uh, who are auditors who don't understand anything about SQL, but who want to see evidence that you have done some checks. And uh, and actually, this um, there are many, many procedures that uh, banks need to follow, that they need to be compliant, but also how these procedures should be made efficient, how, how their employees' time can be saved so that they don't need to do tons of manual checks without any point how they can automate things, how they can share information between the banks, which is super interesting new topic. If you think about uh, spam detection, if you think about computer virus detection, uh, if you think about um, many other types of crime which is happening, then institutions are sharing blacklists, gray lists, uh, some 
hints between themselves. In the AML space, it doesn't happen today yet because it's so heavily regulated. So we're helping to, to untackle this problem that how can bank A and bank B and bank C exchange the information about their suspicious customers so that they all can win from this network data. So we're building technologies for that, which is like private, uh, like um, secure and private enough that banks can do under the current legislations. So like there are loads of products out there, but, but ultimately uh, helping banks to use their data to find crime is ultimately what we're doing. Would it, would it, would it be a fair statement, Tavi, to say that to some extent, what you're doing is assuming that any new customer or any new um, transaction is generally a good one, but that you want to reduce the, the pain of having to, you still have to check it. You're just, your Salva is in the business of making all those backend checks faster, quicker, more efficient, so that for the 90% of transactions are supposed to be good, there is no hiccup, which then creates losses. Um, but knowing that a few of them are gonna get caught and you wanna make that process as simple as possible. Would that, would that be a fair that's, that's one way. That's one way to put it. I remember so well that back in TransferWise, uh, when I, I realized that um, regulators, uh, well, like when TransferWise is serving uh, really high value customers for sending maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000, maybe 100,000 euros, then I'm expected by the regulators to treat these customers as potential criminals, as potentially suspicious people. How the heck normal people got, got that much money? I shouldn't trust that they're normal people. So that's the whole mentality which is put into people's head that, that you should suspect uh, everything which looks unusual. So if your customer is unusual, then it must be suspicious. And, and what we're like trying to do is like to, to turn it around that everyone, we're all individuals, we're all different. And like, yeah, some people have more money, some people have less money. Some people are making more frequent transactions because X, Y, Z. But, but yeah, like untackle this um, or helping to realize uh, what is the expected pattern of the customer, what is unexpected pattern of the customer, um, creating more segments, more categories around these customers, using uh, extra data points inside the banks or between the banks to help to like understand better what's going on, like using simple IP addresses, device fingerprints, uh, like um, links to other customers and so on and so on, which are helping to understand that, okay, these customers are not bad. Like I shouldn't put their account on hold or I shouldn't put their transaction on hold. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny because, and the reason why I, I recategorize it that way is because I want to see Martin, if, if I can prod you and seeing if yours is the inverse of that. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, cybercrime is sort of a big, a big umbrella. Hmm. And if you're right that, every kind of crime pretty much is a form of financial crime. Then the big question is, is resistant AI really a cybercrime seeking company where everything that it's seeing in its data flow is by default suspicious criminal? Um, would you say that that's a fair characterization? So to some extent, yes. And that's very much where we mentally are as a company. So if I, just exaggerate a little bit. Our job is to put Tavi uh, out of business because we don't want any crime to happen at all so that there will be nothing left to launder. Yeah. That's obviously impossible. So there is still plenty of business for self, but uh, we are doing our best. Yeah. The, but, it, but it's two different approaches, right? It's two different approaches and they are very complementary because uh, self is all about empowering people to deal with situations that are common more efficiently and to stop bad things from happening by empowering the teams. Our job is the one of a filter. 
So we basically look and sit on top of the AI systems or automated systems, including the ones like South, and we look for weaknesses on both ways of decisions. One, one thing that's kind of missing in your great division of problems is what I would call friction of crime and or collateral damage of financial crime. Because I guess that any big bank in Europe has roughly 10% of people and probably more dealing with financial crime in one way or the other, which is enormous cost. And when you look at the margins of banks, it's something that can basically be <clears throat> disrupting your business completely because if you spend 10% of your manpower on something that's more productive and not creating any value you get out of business pretty quickly and what we do is that we basically stop these situations from occurring so one of the products we have is very simple today everyone asks for the loans online no one wants to go into a bank physically anymore even if it's a huge transaction so people are and banks extend these online loans, people send them documents in photographs, in PDFs, in JPEGs, in other formats, and we verify they have not been modified. And in about 1% of cases, we know that these documents have been modified. So companies modified their invoices, people modified their paychecks, some other people modified their bank statements issued by other banks and so on, so that they basically claim they can prove that the origin of the money is legitimate when it's not quite so much legitimate. The, they can also prove that they make a lot of money when they don't. And, and their brother-in-law actually does because we can see those original names on the documents and so on. So these are some pretty nice cases. But in terms of volume, the actual professionals, these are typically people who are not professionals, but they are most often one-time offenders. And they can be pushed into that behavior by COVID or by some hard circumstances. The much more difficult case is fraud against payment systems, which is highly scalable and works very well. So people who steal money from e-shops, from merchants, from banks, from anyone who's in the payment chain and who ends up holding up the Black Peter card at the end of the game and who will be responsible for the loss. And blocking those transactions in the chain of automated systems talking to each other is the big part of the activity we have. So give and us an example, just so we can visualize it. Like give us an example of a, of, a, of a crime that's happened where like it was catching something in the middle of workflow of a Shopify. It's just something like, like that, just so that listeners can be like, holy shit, I didn't think that. So that's actually a great question because we like to work with companies in the field of EPOS lending. Our, one of our favorite customers is Twisto, a Czech equivalent of payments solution where basically you can be onboarded in a very light touch way. So you just put in your name, your email address and your phone number, everything you need to deliver and you just push the button and that's it. And they finance your shopping on Shopify or anything else. And this is obviously prone to crime because there is no ID check, there is no credit check. The identity can, can be completely fake. And they have their own really good scoring system that's dealing with credit risk. And we complement their team by working against the organized groups that look for weaknesses and exploit them systematically. The difference between financial crime done by people and the one done by the computers is that if you do it on a computer, you just put a for loop around it and you multiply your takeaway by 1,000. 
So stealing 10 euros makes sense if you can do it 1,000 times, because at the end of the day, you end up with 10,000 euros on plenty of small transactions. Then you have to launder this money, which is Stavi's <laughs> job anyway, but uh, we block these transactions. So we help our customers to discover those highly unlikely coincidences and block them before they can cause damage and before they can cause friction that would put these services out of business. And this is not only limited to EPOS lending. These things can be on the other way. So when we work with the AML system, and not one like Salve, but the legacy ones, they produce enormous amounts of alerts that are meaningless. And they, they just annoy people and fraud teams and AML teams. And we look at those and we basically judge how risky they are and we discard some of them automatically. So they don't even get into the system. So again, we use AI to supervise other AI systems. So if I summarize it a little bit, we protect AI from humans. So our job, when you think about conflict between AI and humanity that some people envision, we are definitely on the side of the AI in that conflict. A couple of thoughts that Martin reminded me actually uh, from your talk. Um, for us as entrepreneurs, we need to remember and realize how innovative and um, these criminals are, people who are committing financial crime, they are true innovators and they are super early adopters. And whenever building up our businesses, e-commerce or like when we're moving money of our customers, then we need to remember that uh, like um, back in like dot-com boom times, many companies went into bankruptcy because their earliest customers were fraudsters who were stealing their money. I think there have been stories even around PayPal that PayPal was almost taken down uh, by the fraudsters. And the, they were maybe the first ones, but not definitely the last ones. Uh, and and same same thing with uh, with all these regulatory and compliance requirements, as Martin referred, that people are asked to post their like a uh, proof where they got their money or bank statements or or address confirmations. So there are actually sites which are selling uh, fake documents. You can order them, like uh, you can ask them to put in like, do you want to park at Parklies uh, banks? Uh, like a bank statement about your salary and your income and you feed in the data and you get back the original document for that. And and like um, people are changing criminals are exchanging their information in the dark web. So there are not too many people among ourselves who can enter or who are willing to enter into dark web. Criminals are sharing the market information knowledge in there. And this kind of net power of the networking and innovation is something that's leading their, their markets quite uh, Quite heavily, and that's why we need companies like Martin's, uh, like a pure AI and like a scientific, um, like a hardcore approach, in order to beat at least up to some level these these criminals. So, yeah. like, yeah, it, it would be like really wrong to think that these are just some schoolboys doing some tricks with their their machines, but actually it's like very well organized. They have lawyers, they have mathematicians, they have software developers who can write four cycles, but also much more complex things <laughs> things when yeah. attacking. Uh, and that's definitely the right answer because one thing that you brought up and I forgot to say is the sophistication of the attackers. There is a whole theoretical field of adversarial machine learning where people, scientists think about how do you attack AI systems. So they are on the side of humanity. But uh, criminals figured out completely different ways. They don't basically try to replicate what's done in the scientific community but they are attacking them using original means and original approaches, which is exactly how cybersecurity came to be. Like people like Aleph Zero, actually a friend of mine, 
and he invented Stack Overflow in the 90s, or he was the one to publicly document it. And that's the kind of innovation happening now in the AI and financial crime. Basically, people are inventing whole new categories of crimes and they are committing them before the law can catch up, which is actually fascinating. So let's talk about the law a little bit. Um, when you say the law can't catch up, I mean, to some extent, it sounds like um, you guys are helping the law catch up. But uh, where, where is the law on this? Like, are, are, is the law or is regulation... Um, not helping enough or is it actually creating a blockage towards innovation? From my perspective, I, I still keep um, thinking about uh, Christo Karman, also your portfolio companies, Transformers um, head and my mentor and former lead. And he said that, David, think about these um, regulations and, and think about like, what is the true intent and tension of these regulations? What did people think that they wanted to achieve when writing these laws. And, and, and I truly believe that people who are writing laws and, uh, and who are voting for them really want to like, reduce the amount of drug trafficking and human trafficking and, and all this illegal stuff. But what is happening is that they haven't been part of this fight and they don't know what to write down in the laws and like how exactly this crime should be stopped. So, and, and they're learning over the time, but as they're not in the middle of this interest and not in the middle of this fight, uh, their learning curve is, is quite slow. So if I'm thinking about what's their intention, it's completely aligned with our intention. And that's that's encouraging me that they're going in really right direction. But when I'm reading what's written down, then yes, it's, it's, uh, it's low, it doesn't help too much. Um, Europe, on the European level, um, it is getting better actually. European money laundering directives are coming out. They used to be um, coming out in every five years. Now they're coming out almost in every year. So Yes, we can can say that this adding more and more legal documents um, more frequently is not a great thing. But actually, there are good nuances that they are helping. Uh, like, uh, take about uh, uh, think about discussion about GDPR, which was like super hot uh, two years ago, and all the companies were worried that it's stopping their progress. But, but at the same time, GDPR actually was preventing also the fight against financial crime because like, banks couldn't share the information with, with each other about suspicious cases. And now um, on the legislation level or like a European level, they're trying to figure out, okay, how to bypass or how to, to find out like what are the exceptions that they need to write down into the laws so that actually if it comes to crime fighting, they would allow to exchange some of the criminals information at mm -hmm. least. And, and like this shows how like, um, uh, European level and then global level as well and on the country level, innovators like, um, uh, legislations are also becoming more and more innovative, but definitely just like a couple of years behind the, um, the progress. At the same time, like uh, in UK, there's FCA was like really showing how, how uh, supervisor can actually drive this thinking. They're organizing hackathons, sprint, just uh, this summer, there was a data hacking sprint that organized in order to bring this interest into faster base. So actually, the, in, in some areas, they're also actually showing uh, the good direction. Um, of course, it's not yet in the laws in the UK, but at least it's, it's calling people to think along with them. And it's really, really positive. Let me complement that a little bit, because it's not so much about laws, but it's also about the institutions enforcing the laws. Because if you try to come to the police and open like case for fraud, which 10,000 times cost you $1, it's very hard because they would have to open 10,000 files. 
and then they would have to merge them. And the amount of work involved is enormous. So the legal processes and the enforcement processes are not tailored for digital life and digital world. So that's something we will have to deal with. So prevention is definitely the way to go. Anecdotically, I think FBI just recently did the first ever case when they published a digital PDF document as an indictment and not the one where they scanned uh, a document written on, on a scanner and then published that PDF, which is a small step. But again, you can now process these automatically and you can act on them immediately without having people type them over. So that's, these are small steps and we need to make them faster. Mm. And how much, how much are you guys seeing the, I know that there's a division point with companies working in crypto versus not crypto. Like there's that's that world is still kind of like a, a funny divide because the bulk of the financial systems of the world are not in the crypto realm, but those two things are becoming more and more enmeshed in different ways. Um, wh where do you see that evolving and impacting companies and, and organizations as you're one or two hops away from a crypto source of funds or a crypto uh, injection of funds or payout of funds. How, how does that look like in a future where, you know, the, those things have different sets of structures and challenges and payment networks? I think that there is no significant difference between crypto and traditional banking in terms of the ends. The means are significantly different, but people overestimate the opaqueness of crypto world. And you can talk this to the GRE operatives who wanted to finance something by basically crypto and Bitcoin and found out very publicly that this was something that would cause them significant embarrassment. Or you can talk to people who basically now have FBI who knows everything about how much drug they sold to some to whom. So that's, uh, that's a significant issue with crypto. But criminals are getting smart about that. In principle, I don't think that there is much difference because you can get as opaque as you wish with traditional finance or you can get as opaque as you wish with crypto. And in the same way as we blacklist some nations or locations or banks, we would be blacklisting some kinds of crypto exchanges, accounts or wallets. So for me, the principle is very much the same. People are just not accustomed to the new identities and the new way of doing business. But I will let Tavi now finish my thought. Thank you, thank you, sir, for bringing up. Uh, basically, what I am thinking is that, like, if the traditional banking sector would have the same transparency and visibility as the crypto networks have, like seeing all the transactions back in the beginning of the history, then we wouldn't have the problem with money laundering at all, almost, or it would be corner case. And definitely, of course, like there are some crypto networks and some protocols which are super well hidden and uh, and um, as Martin said, they, they they should should be maybe sanctioned and. Uh, I got lost, but majority of the technology itself, it's super flexible and, and visible, which I really like. I've been building uh, some uh, like money laundering, monitoring uh, technology also for the crypto networks. And I've, I've enjoyed that because like, I, I had the luxury to see interactions between the different entities, which I cannot see in the normal banking sector. So that's, um, that's um, of course, it, it has weaknesses, but but from crime detection point of view it's no brainer and there are super good providers out there who can who can show that it's it's possible to fight and prevent crime in the mm -hmm. crypto networks quite well nice well my last question to you guys individually is fast forward 5 years in the future 
And imagine both your companies are massively successful delivering value to your customers. What financial product will that customer now be able to launch as a consequence of the value that you provided them with your product? It's a good one. It's, um, I would answer it, uh, it a bit more differently. Like, just think about uh, your laptop um, or PC, whatever you have. Uh, when did you worry last time about your virus protection? And then when did you, did you have to upgrade your virus definitions or download the packages? Um, it was maybe a topic, hot topic 10 years ago for us and 15 years ago that we had to ensure that our virus protection is up to date and the best, uh, otherwise we were screwed. Um, like uh, five years or 10 years from now, I see that this money laundering problem, money laundering protection problem is on the same level for the banks. Yes, it is there. They need to invest into technology, uh, but, uh, but it's like a marginal spend comparing to the spend that they have today. Like uh, as Martin said, some, some companies have 10% of, of their staff working on AML and crime protection. So maybe it will be 1% or less than 1% of people working. And thanks to the saving, thanks to the money that they don't need to put into this crime fighting anymore, they can build whatever they want in the world. But now their, their investment, I've spoken with one banker who said that about 80% of their budget, like a development the budget is, is allocated to the compliance and only 20% is, is meant for the innovation about new products. So like, mm. and like we're helping to take it down to maybe 10% of their budget has to go on, go on AML and compliance and 90 can mm. go in innovation. And it's, it's up for them to figure out what products they will actually build with that money. Cool. Martin. So let me take a broader perspective because Tavi gave the basic like perspective very like on the operational level. For myself, I look into the market impact and the impact on the market for me is that if what we do works, then we will be able to deliver or our customers will be able to deliver really flexible and immediate financial solutions for people. So you can ask for a mortgage at midnight and you will get it in a couple of seconds. So all of those promises of fintechs that are kind of held behind or yes, it could be automated, but you have to work for, wait for this approval and then you have to go through this and you have to do this manually. All of those gotchas and catches will disappear. And that's the role of the two companies we are building. Basically, let's make finance really automated, convenient and immediate so that you can really get what you need quickly. And it wouldn't basically require 10,000 people working in India or in Latvia or Czech Republic on approving things manually. Mm. And that's the goal we have. Well, it's funny because I was, I was gonna, I was like, you know, I, I hope one of them says this. So there we go. That, that I, I agree that 100% that that's the future. And as a seed camp, we backed you guys and several other companies that are all kind of going towards that direction of that future. Um, well, with that, guys, look, it was an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we could go deeper, deeper into anecdotes about financial crime and, and maybe even tell some that are worthy of a TV show. But for now, thanks so much for sharing your individual stories and what you're working on. And uh, it was a great pleasure having you both on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, guys. Until next Bye. time. Bye. Thank you, Carlos.